good singing this morning. You may be seated. At this time, we don't need our Bibles yet, but we need a mom and a dad and a baby. She's over here. Yes. I think I'm on now. Am I on now? Can you hear me now? You guys stay right there. I'm coming down to you. Oh, little Madeline Hope. I love these days. I get to hold it. Did you really bring a spit up rag? Oh, you never know. Oh, man. I will take her. Come on, sweetheart. There we go. Oh, you spit up it all you want to. Well, we are certainly excited over the months that she's been in your all's life, but we're excited for you guys as well. When we do a baby dedication, this, does not, this is not her salvation. Uh, this is just a public demonstration by mom and dad to say that they want to raise little Madeline in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. And so when we pray, we pray for her. Oh, I just put her to sleep. She's already used to my preaching. We pray for her. Yes, yeah, she, she does fall asleep during it. We pray for her, but today I'll also be praying for Zach and for Sarah in the roles that God has assigned to them. Father, I thank you for this little one. I thank you for who she is and who she, who she will become. Father, I know that Zach and Sarah, from the day she was conceived, began to pray for her life. I pray that they will never cease in doing that. Lord, we pray today that she would come to know Jesus Christ early in life. That she would see the faith in mom and dad. That she would understand the calling that's upon dad's life. And that she would earnestly desire that same faith. Lord, we pray for whom she will marry. Oh yes, at such a young age, it's still the time to be praying for such things. I pray that she grows to be a godly young lady. And that with her life, she spends it with a godly young man. So glorifying and pleasing you. Father, we do pray this morning for Zach. Help him as the head of the household. The Bible tells us that children are in heritage of the Lord. But he is the mighty man into which this little girl has been placed. She is an arrow that he will shoot out into life. So the success of her life is dependent upon his faith and trust and walk with you. May you guard him and guide him as a leader of his home. God, be with Sarah as she helps in the home what a wonderful nurturer she is. I pray that you would give her grace in the raising of Madeline and any other brothers and sisters that come. May you give her the strength to teach the fortitude to be the godly woman who is able to lead in her own place. God bless this home. We thank you, obviously, for them, for the ministry that they have amongst us, your people. But we pray that you would always put a protection about them. May you bless them and guide them. Be with this little one in Jesus' name. Amen. Sound asleep. It's perfect. She did good, Mom. While they're departing, can I have our veterans stand this morning? Yesterday was Veterans Day. If you've served in any military branch, please stand this morning. 
Thank you and thank you. By raise of hand, I will go through your branches. How many here are in the army or were in the army? Raise your hand real high. All right. Thank you. My dad's in that. Thank you. How many were in the Air Force? Raise your hand real high. Thank you. How about the Navy? How about the Coast Guard? And do we have any Marines in here? Hoorah. You know, I always put you guys last because... It's hard to keep thinking, and everybody else has been the process of elimination, so you jarheads get it just neat there at the end. And I also noticed that your all's birthday was on, on uh, Friday for the Marine Corps, right? It's always interesting for those Marines. They have to be reminded every year when their birthday is. The rest of the branches, they know. They, they just seem to know. But those Marines, now I can give them a hard time because as their pastor, they won't beat me up. But if I ever stop pastoring, I know there's a lot of Marines lined up ready to give me a black eye. So in all seriousness, thank you. On Memorial Day, we appreciate those who have given their lives, either in service to the country or who have gone on from this life having served our country. But it's here, it is here on Veterans Day we, that we thank you who are serving or who have served. We pray that our country will never forsake or forget what you've given to us. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll jump into the preaching and the other things for this morning's worship. Father, Father, excuse me, we thank you for these men and women, as we had in the early service as well, who have served you by serving us and serving our country. I'm often reminded when it comes to those who are in the military or those who serve as police officers that they are the verses in verses 6 and 7 of Romans 5. We know Romans 8, but God commendeth His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But in those verses preceding, it says, peradventure for a good man would one dare to die. That is what a veteran is, a soldier, a sailor, a marine, an airman, a coast guardsman. They are willing to die for the sake of our country. They are willing to do what they are told, to go where they are sent, and to accomplish the tasks that are set before them. Lord, in this age that we live, I have no doubt, especially many of our senior veterans, are amazed at the condition of our country. God, may they understand that does not diminish their service to this great land. It just reminds us that our generations, those who are now in leadership and those who are coming into leadership, must respect the sacrifice of those who've come before us. We cannot forsake our country. We cannot leave our principles and our values. God, thank you for those who are here in our church body who have served and are serving. May they understand and appreciate that we respect and love them for what they've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me, if you will, to the book of Proverbs. You're in for a doozy of a message today. Have you ever heard a Baptist preacher on a Sunday morning message talk about compound interest? Well, you do today. Uh, You will now. And uh, it's not the whole message, thankfully. (laughs) It'll be a portion of it. Proverbs chapter 13, we're dealing with stewardship principles. Last week, we looked at sweat, 
work. The first principle of a life that pleases God from the Word of God in the life that God has asked us to manage for Him is that we engage in work. And we live, by the way, in an age and a culture where people don't seemingly want to work at all anymore. Now, I think present company excluded, but the warning last week was for those of us in this congregation, we must understand the Bible says work. So we talked about that last week. Well, we come this morning to the second principle, and that is save. Now, again, I'm not preaching this morning on salvation by grace through faith. That is certainly our modus operandi as a church family. We believe that salvation is only through Jesus Christ. So when I say the principle is save, I'm not talking this morning about salvation of souls. I'm actually talking about our finances. Very rarely on a Sunday morning do I preach a message that goes away from the principles to a practical. But may I submit to you, if we do not do the practical things out in the world or as Christians, if we don't practice the basic truths of the Bible, why would anyone want to hear about faith in Jesus Christ? What's different about us? And the answer is because we live according to this book. The Bible tells us that we should work and that we should work hard, but the Bible tells us also that we should save. Look with me in verse number 11. We'll read it and then jump right into the preaching this morning. The Bible says this, and by the way, Proverbs 13 has a whole lot of verses that talk about your finances. Proverbs 13 has at least six, and we're going to deal with a good number of them throughout the message today. Chapter 13 and verse 11 says this, wealth gotten by vanity shall be diminished. Now let's pause and let's at least address this. I'll I'll mention it later in the message. This is your typical lottery winner. Wealth gotten by vanity. In other words, in an empty pursuit, in an empty way, in a way that is not biblically pleasing. The person that pursues wealth for the vanity of this world, the, the consumption to their own selves, the person that is pursuing wealth that way, it says it will only do what? Diminish. But notice the latter half of the verse. The Bible says this in verse 11. But he that gathereth by labor shall increase. According to Bankrate, I was reading on this week, the Federal Reserve tells us, I don't know how much you trust the Federal Reserve, but the Federal Reserve tells us that the average consumer bank account balance today is 5000 bucks. That means of liquid assets and liquid cash, the average American family has $5,000. They also have told us that the total investments and savings of the typical American household, that is the average American household, is $11,000. And some of you are saying, man, that's a lot of money. And others of you are saying, how do you live with so little amounts of savings? It shows us the dichotomy in the thinking, even within a church house. As to what is healthy and what is good. Let me put it in perspective. The total debt, and I put these at the top of your notes this morning. The total debt for those same average homes that have $5,000 in liquid assets or liquid cash and the total investment value of $11,000, their debt total, not including their mortgage and their, exclusively I should say their mortgage, but their mortgage, their car loans, their student debt, their credit card debt, and every other type of personal debt, 
For each person, it's over $75,000. That's every man, every woman, every boy, and every girl in America. So a family of four has a debt load of $300,000, where their savings only total $16,000. Now, today's message is not on debt. And you say, well, it sure sounds that way. But I have to set the table for why savings biblically is so important, because debt is crippling. It is destructive to us. The average of every depositor in America is less than $16,000. Yikes. I want to introduce you to the most depressing website in the world. Now, it's tiny. I wish it could fit better on the screen. It can't. Some of you can read the very top. What does it say? U.S. Debt Clock. I was watching a financial guy this week in putting more context to what I believe and what I was going to teach and what the Bible says. And he said, this is the second most depressing website you'll go to. The first most is how close we are to nuclear annihilation. And I got to thinking while I was watching the guy, I'm a Christian, so the nuclear annihilation really isn't that bad because it would happen like that, right? I would be in heaven. This you got to live with. This is the most depressing website. While I've been talking, some of you are with really good eyes can see that the top left corner says U.S. national debt. It's $33,718,953,000,000, I think, if my eyes are not betrayed me, million, and I can't even keep up with the thousands and hundreds of thousands. That is literally every second that I'm talking, we are adding like another million dollars to the overall debt. Every time I'm saying more sense. Sentences, it keeps going up. Nope. I think we have a problem in our country. You say, well, why are you preaching it to us? I don't have that problem. I know. Just in case you can't keep up with that, I, I took two screenshots throughout the week. And a screenshot is literally in the millisecond that I hit capture screen what was on the screen on this u.s debt clock here was monday morning this is what it looked like 33 trillion 702 billion 52 million 594,720 at the nanosecond i hit print screen look at the stuff that's next to it per citizen you every man every boy and every girl in here you owe one hundred thousand dollars of the u.s debt now some of you are like well i don't know it well we keep voting in people that keep continuing policies that keep putting up these kinds of numbers politics is always downstream of our culture I couldn't, but if I had gone down into another quadrant, I would show you that the U.S. personal debt load, including everything that we are indebted to, both nationally and privately, is well over $165 trillion. Coupling this 33 to all the personal loan debts that we as Americans take on. I'm reminded of that old commercial of the guy that's driving around with three new trucks in his driveway, a boat out front, and he's got the new John Deere tractor, and he's smiling ear to ear, and he says, I have all of these things, and I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. That's America. That's who we are. By the way, just for perspective, this morning at 5.45 a.m., I took this picture of the debt. We've gone up $16 billion in debt by doing nothing over the last six days. 
Good luck. Your sermon is going to fix all of this? No, but I needed to make a significant point to you this morning that nationally we have a problem. So when you say, I'm just doing what everybody's doing, I'm telling you they're doing it wrong. You know, anytime you put together a sermon, the meat of the message is what's important, but they always tell the preacher, get their attention in those first few moments. Have I done that? Are you listening now? A Christian nation should not be living in such financial straits. It's a, it's a situation of economic collapse, to be truthful. And make no mistake, as a nation, we are in the midst of an economic collapse. I remember my grandma Fannin, when I would go visit her, in the earliest days when I was a little boy, there would be lumps in her mattress because she would stuff jars of cash under her mattress. And I would say, Grandma, why do you do that? She was born in 1923. She lived as a young teenage girl through the Depression. And money was not her idol, but money was important because she grew up with nothing. I'm convinced the track that we're on and some that seem to be in control want us to be a nation of paupers always living on the government handout. But take heart, I'll get to debt next week. So if you're really depressed up to this point, just don't come next. No, I'm kidding. We're going to talk about our spending next week. Simply to say, old Dave on the radio's got it right. Debt is dumb. May I add to that thought? Debt is debilitating and debt is destructive to the person who finds themselves trapped within it. This morning, I do want to preach another practical message that many of us, hopefully most of us, are on the positive side of today. If you're not, then take the practical preaching as both a warning and a wake-up call to you. God is not a fan of you and I living perpetually in debt. That is a sign of a lack of self-control on our part. Proverbs 13, I told you there's a lot of great verses in this little proverb. Proverbs 13 and verse 18, if you look down there, it says, Poverty and shame shall be to him that refuseth instruction. I'm going to give you basic instructions about a savings account. And I don't even work for a bank. Maybe they'll hire me after this. I don't know. But the point is, is that it's a good idea to save money. Why? Because you will otherwise live in poverty and in shame. But he that regardeth reproof shall be honored. Let's start this morning by looking at the pathway to saving. The pathway to saving. The Bible, that we, the Bible verse that we read here in verse 11 says, He that gathereth by labor shall increase. It tells us then, in the sense of gathereth, that there is a progressive approach to this. There's an ongoing process to this, if you will. Scripturally, there are steps, there are milestones along this pathway of saving. And it begins, letter A, with making a plan. It begins with you making a plan. A budget is a plan. Making a budget and living off of that budget is essential to biblical stewarding, biblically stewarding your money. In the Gospels, we often find the apostles who come to Jesus perplexed about how they are going to solve what they perceive as a supply shortage. But they are always coming to the right source because Jesus had all the supply that he needed. He could supply for them, right? He was God. Now, some of you are saying, well, my bank account is not being funded by Jesus. But if you will live by the word of God and by his principles, it can be. 
Meaning God will honor those who live according to his word. But when the apostles would come to Jesus, Jesus would use what he had laid in store at his disposal. He would do it wisely. My favorite story of this or example of how we use what God has or has given to us, what he's provided wisely, is in the story of the feeding the 5,000. Well, what happens? Well, the little boy comes with his loaves and his fishes and Andrew says, what are these amongst so many? And God says, just start with the little stuff. Let me work with what I've provided or what has been given, and I will make sure that it is enough. But the great part of the story for our lesson today is at the end of feeding the 5,000, what does he tell them to do? He tells those men to go out to those people with baskets, 12 full, the Bible says, and bring them back to him. God does not want us to live wastefully. He wants us to make a plan by making a budget. So many of us become accustomed to always living on credit. Can I suggest to you that is a very stressful way to live? You must make a plan to save or you never will. Now, between the two church services, I placed on the church app. Please don't open it right now, but on your way home, you can. I put in there two simple budgets. If you are an Apple person, I put a numbers file in there. All of the forms and all of the functions will add up. It is the budget that Jessica and I have used It's not our numbers, but it's the blank one that we have used probably for the last 12 years and how we go every year. This is what the budget is. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to spend money on. This is what's going to be allocated to this. Do you know why we make that? Because early in the days of the church, we didn't make a lot of money. We had to make sure every penny, literally every penny was counted for. So I don't care if you make tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars or just tens of thousands of dollars, you need to make a plan for your money. You have to have a budget. If you need help understanding how to budget, Pastor Zach is the finance pastor. He'd be glad to meet with you. I'll be glad to explain the budget simply. Every person that gets married in the church, every couple, they have to go through at some point and do this very budget so that they know as a young couple, we're not going to live in debt. The second thing you must do in this path is beyond making a plan is letter B, make it a priority. When we started the church, Jessica and I lived off of our savings for about the first two years. Now, the men of the church came to me often and said, hey, hey, we we would like to pay you a salary. And they began by taking up our health insurance and paying for that. And today, we'll talk about this actually next Sunday in the budget, the church family I think, overpays me for my position. The men here that set the budget and all the folks that come and look at it say, it's not enough, but I think you overpay me. Because I remember the days when it was zero. And I remember the days when it was 20. And I remember the days when it was in the 30,000 range. And that's hard to raise a family on. But God always provided because we made a plan and we made the fact that we were going to be careful with our money a priority to us. We were not perfect in it. God has always seen fit, so long as we make the plan our priority, to bless Jessica and I in the fact of how we use our money. He will do the same for you. It's not like we have anything special. Those days, those earliest days of planting a church, have always kept us laser-like focused on the priority of saving for down the road, because you never know what may come. By the way, if that's the way you begin to live, you will always have a healthy amount in reserve. The problem is we live in a day today where we don't prioritize it. Many Americans marginalize savings. 
Savings. I mean, you, it's YOLO, man. You only live once. Live for the now. Take that money and go spend it. You need that truck. You need that car. You need that bigger house. And the question is, do you? You see, those are always the enemies of saving. Saving money or building wealth, I put in your notes, is a primary reason you work. <laughs> Why do you work? So I can have money. Okay. What are you doing with that money? I don't know. Well, then make a plan and start prioritizing saving. Well, you make me sound dumb, Pastor. I, I don't mean to. By the way, before I met Jessica, my parents will attest to this. I, I, met, I had a great salary, and I had a very little bit in savings. They tried. They tried to beat it in my head. My sister understood it. She, as Dave Ramsey might call it, she was the saver of our family, my sister. I was the free spirit. Thankfully, I married Jessica, who said, I love your free spirit. Let's save. That's <laughs> what so two become one. It's a great thing, especially for us knuckleheads of the world. Why are you working? What is it that you're working for? It's almost like most Americans, and it's almost like most Christians are like that old 80s song. We're just working for the weekend. <laughs> really? Why would you put in so much sweat equity? You see, these principles all build. If I'm going to work and sweat, the Bible says, He that gathereth by labor shall increase. Why aren't you increasing? Because you haven't made a plan, and you haven't made that process of life a priority for you. And may I say to you, you're living no different than everybody else on that debt clock. The Bible says that Christians should be different. Joseph is the perfect example of this back in Genesis chapter number 41. Pharaoh's dream came and Joseph answered it. Of course, the broader story of Joseph is not about the money, but there's a financial component to it. There's a stewardship principle in it. Joseph comes to him and says, hey man, it's going to be, bad. It's going to be great for seven years. It's going to be bad for seven years. Can I suggest to you as an American, we might be moving into some lean years. Have you laid in store for that? Or are you just going to hope like they did in COVID that they'll just keep cutting checks from the government to make sure that you can survive? Well, that's what the government's for. No, the government is to not pay for your life. It's to protect you and keep you safe. It's the basic role to preserve human life. That's the basic role of human government. We have now gotten to where we are expecting them to pay for life instead of protect my life. Joseph's prudence paid off in the saving of his family, his friends, and even Pharaoh. What brings us to letter C, and that is this. Give your money purpose. The third milestone, the final step, if you will, in the savings pathway is give it purpose. You say, what does that mean? Tell your money what to do. We're going to talk about this in greater detail in the next point. But simply put, the Bible even gives you answers to tell your money what to do. I mean, I'm not suggesting you pull your wallet out and open it and start saying, all right, dollar bill, you better listen to me. But I mean, you need to make sure your money is doing what you tell it to do. Well, I think money is icky. Okay, well, put your gloves on and tell money what to do. Well, money just confuses me, Pastor. I mean, I can't figure any of it out. Okay, then find somebody that does and let them help you. Make your money do what it's supposed to do. Let me ask this question when we talk about giving purpose to our money. 
Are you wanting by earning money to just be rich? I mean, it would be great to be rich. How many remember the old comic book, Richie Rich? Man, that was great, right? Richie Rich was so rich that they named him Richie Rich, okay? It was great. He had gold trains and gold spoons and a gold house. It was a great comic strip. Can I tell you something? None of us are Richie Rich. Living to be rich is the wrong biblical motivation for saving. Now, that is not me saying that those who practice biblical principles cannot and will not ultimately be individuals of means or wealth. If you follow the Bible's principles of saving as you ought to, you will, after a lifetime of labor, gathering by labor, you will have. The word shall is in that verse for a reason. You shall have what? Increase. You'll probably have an increase in your income over the life of your career. You'll have increase in your savings and in your own personal wealth. These are all Bible truths. This is just the principle of how things work. But being rich should not be our motivation. It never, should, it never is in the Word of God. The proper motivation for saving is to show that you appreciate God's provision for you. That's why you save. God, you gave me this. Why on earth would I waste what you gave me? I'm going to make it very blunt for us this morning. Would you come to the Bible, which you believe God gave to you as a good provision for your soul, and just reach in and tear out a book of the Bible and say, I don't need that? Would you do that? Now, some of you might look at the book of Numbers and say, there's a lot of names in there. I I might go ahead and do that. And it is Numbers, so maybe it's about money. I don't know. I mean, but none of us would take what is a good gift and a provision from God and say, I just don't need that. Why do you look at your time, your talent, and your treasure in any other way? These are all provisions. These are all good gifts and perfect gifts, James says, that cometh down from the Father of lights. These are God's benefits in your life. Your work, we noted last week, your labor and the wage that you earned is an honorable thing. Why then would you treat it such as a light thing? To each of us, what do you intend to do with the money that you save? Let me ask a maybe even more personal question. How much do you need? I've been asked that question before. Pastor, how much money do I need? I, I don't know what purpose you've given to your money. But between you and God, what you intend to do with your money to His glory, that's between you and Him. I don't know how much you need. Jessica and I, when we retire, just want to drive around the country in an RV. I don't know how expensive that's going to be. But if gas prices keep going up, we're going to need like three or four million dollars for retirement. What do you want to do with the increases that you receive? How much do you want to have to pass on to others? I was reading just yesterday morning in the book of 1 Kings where Naboth has a field. Ahab and Jezebel go. Jezebel tricks Naboth to receive that field. But there was an interesting statement that stuck out to me in this context of giving purpose to what we possess, to what we have. The Bible says that Naboth seemingly was struggling. He wanted to give King Ahab, who was a wicked man, he wanted to give him the field. But ultimately he said, I can't because it's my father's inheritance. It's what we've worked for. I can't just give it away. And I thought, boy, there's a good principle for each of us that works in that. Value your own time, your own energy, your own effort, and the wage that you've been given. Value your inheritance. 
When you give your money purpose, you realize that it, it is just a tool. The people that don't give purpose to their money idolize and make the object of their love money. Or they, they are saying, I just want more of it because they've never learned to use and make effective what they actually have. But when you give your money purpose, boy, it becomes a tool. It's no longer the love of your life. I do not love my hammer. I do not love my jigsaw. I love the tools that I have at my house to do the certain things I want to do, but I don't love them. They're a tool. Money is just a tool. We might say it this way, and I put it at the bottom of your notes, underneath this point, I should say. When money works for you, then you are no longer working for it. That's what it means to give purpose to your money. Now, some of you are thinking, could you just go back and preach on salvation from now on? (laughs) I don't like this kind of preaching. Well, the reason we don't is because we don't practice often this kind of preaching. It's why it's needed from time and again in a church's life. Do you think I'm not saving? I don't know your finances at all. I don't know what anybody in this church gives. I know that this church family gives wonderfully well, and that's a blessing. But the point is, I don't know who's giving what. That's a great place to be, by the way, as a pastor. The pathway to savings brings us to number two, the principle in savings. And by the way, I spelled it correctly. I hope you do as well. I'm not talking about the principle, Ellie. I'm talking about the sum or the amount that you set into savings, the actual thing called principle. Right? Every one of us that has a mortgage note on our house, we know that every month we pay so much towards principle and we pay so much towards the banker's vacation boat. Right? They have the big buildings for a reason, it has once been said. They're not evil people, by the way. I know there's a lot of great bankers. But they become evil because we let debt control us. The church, by the way, has a wonderful relationship with our bank. They're usually beating down the door for us because we pay on time and we retire the debt as quickly as we can. Banks actually like good customers. They don't like deadbeats. As a pastor, I have chosen a life not to pursue filthy lucre or money that is gotten in a dirty way or in a dishonest way, the Bible says, greedy gain. That does not mean, as a pastor, that I don't live my life according to what the Bible teaches. In fact, I do live my life according to what the Bible teaches on increase and the principal amounts that I am to save. If you are diligent in your plan, if you make savings a priority and you give purpose to your money, then those who make even the most modest amounts of money can have increase that you can lay in store. So it is that principle that I want to give a little Bible knowledge on for you this morning because my job as an under-shepherd is to lead the flock in what the Word of God says. Letter A, commit to saving. I said, wasn't that like making a plan and making it a priority? Making something a priority is in your mind. Committing to something is with your hands. I'm actually going to do it. Where does the increase come from? It comes from the commitment to doing it. He that gathered... By labor, he went out and got the wage and put it to use in the right way. There is no quick way to save money. It takes intentional choices of both dedication and denial. Do you know why the American public cannot save? It's because we live in an instant gratification society. How many likes did I get? Oh, look at that. That made me unhappy. I didn't get enough. 
My YouTube likes are down. You know what I found out? But this is a side preaching, side point. This is free for you this morning. Do you know who has the most views of any sermon in this church? That guy right there. Not even the pastor. You people. No, I'm kidding. The point is, is that we live in a culture like that, don't we? You're like, for a second, you thought, does that bother you, pastor? No, it's actually great, by the way, because it was a wonderful sermon that he preached. But we live in a culture like that, right? I, I, I just want the most likes. I just want the most eyes on me. I just want the most attention. I just want the most fun now. YOLO, baby! You only live once! Isn't that how we live? Well, I don't say that, Pastor. I'm old enough and dignified enough. I'm not going to talk like that. Well, you live like it. I live like it sometimes. You have to commit to this. Friends, if your plan is to win the lottery or wait for an inheritance, then you will waste that money just like you waste the hard-earned paycheck that you earn. No, I won't. Because there'll be a lot of it then. No, you'll just waste a lot of it. The very first statement in this verse tells us that wealth gotten by vanity or with emptiness, uselessness, without purpose shall be diminished. It will be eroded. The secret to building savings is to live below your means. I know that is shocking. Some in here are like, yeah, that's obvious. I've known that my whole life. And yet there's others, especially of our youngest generations in here, like, Oh, I guess that makes sense. Yes, it does. It's the only way to be successful. Live on less than you make. Well, don't make a lot. Then you're going to have a very Spartan life. (laughs) If you don't know what that means, look up the Spartans. For some of us, saving is harder. For some, it's easier. Jessica is more inclined to be the saver in our home. I have learned it. When I asked Gary if I could marry Jessica, when I went to my father-in-law's house, I said, I'd like to marry Jessica. He said, Kyle, I'm going to tell you one thing. Jessie will not cost you a dime in her life because her mother has never cost me a dime in her life. She is a saver. She was a Proverbs 31 woman. And Gary was right. In fact, not only has she not cost me a dime, she saved me a whole lot of dimes through our marriage. I am the free spirit, as if you couldn't tell that already. (laughs) Jessica is the serious saver in our home, and I'm glad for that. In Jesus' parable concerning the talents in Matthew chapter 25, the man who received five talents and the man who received two talents put their money to work. If you were to read Matthew 25, that parable, it literally says of those two individuals, they put their money to trade. That is the King James use or statement that is there. It literally means they put it out and put it to work for them. They committed to taking what was entrusted to them, what was provided to them, what was given to them, and then to put what they got to work. But the one who received the one talent did not. The master's correction of that unfaithful steward was you should have at least put it in the bank. The words that Jesus uses in Matthew 25 is you should have at least given it to the exchangers. It means at least take it down to the bank, plop it down to the bank, and let it draw basic interest from those exchangers. Even if you didn't put it into effective trade in any other investment, at least you should have done that. Now, of course, we understand the principle and the parable of the talents broadly speaks about the 
spiritual life, the eternal life that we've been giving, and how do we spend that? But friend, can I tell you, every possession that you receive in the physical world also needs to be stewarded to God's glory. And he's basically saying, even if you are as dumb as a rock, go at least and put it in the bank. And I don't think there's any dumb rocks in here this morning. Though this principle of saving your earnings is not a salvation principle, and it's not, it is a sanctification principle for life. Are you going to waste what you've worked for and what God has provided for you? Or will you be wise and put it to work both for Him and for you? It takes commitment to live that way. You don't just happen upon that, well, I guess I'll just do that then. You have to make a decision. There's denial that has to take place. If you commit to saving, you will save. That commitment has to come with both competence, meaning I know how to do it, and confidence. So let's go to letter B, and that is this. With this matter of principle, the sum that I'm going to put into it, let's talk about compound or compounding our savings. Now, how many of you love finance, math, interest rates and things like that. Raise your hand real high. Come on, let's be nerds together. Man, I, Jessica knows I have charts on all kinds of stuff. Well, if there's this percentage and this, now how many of you hate that kind of stuff? Raise your hand. Let's be honest. Okay. All right. Good. Just do me a favor. Take your fingers and just hold your eyes open then for the next few minutes. Okay. Just do that for me. My job as a pastor is to try to give to you practical Christian living principles, things that you can do. Now, I'm going to say this. I am not a financial advisor. (gasps) Shocking, I know. But every financial advisor that you talk to will tell you that for your savings, time is an interest thing. Now, I didn't say it wrong. I'm not saying time is an interesting thing. I mean, literally, time is an interest thing. Interest compounds over time. That's the great beauty of saving money. Not long ago, by the way, let me say this. I don't think they're teaching kids this in school anymore. Why? Well, answer it in your own mind, but I'll answer it out loud. It's because they would rather have the kids ignorant of how to control and manage their own finances because then they always just have to be coming back and going, please, more, sir. May I have some more soup? That's a good one. Thank you, Brian. Somebody's got laughing at my bad jokes. Oliver Twist. Not long ago, I sat my boys down and we began talking about investing. Now, they get allowances from Jessica and I. We're talking $10 a week. They are not Charlie Munger. They are not Warren Buffett. I mean, they get 10 bucks a week, okay? In fact, last week, they only got 8 bucks because they didn't finish all their chores. And Mom's like, they didn't finish their chores. They're not getting paid. Would you pay a guy that only fixes our washer halfway? No. That's happened this week. <laughs> and so as I began to talk to them, I said this. Fellas, if you will buy a mutual fund or an ETF, again, those that are holding their eyes open, those are just financial vehicles that you can use in investing. If you bought $1,000 of a mutual fund or an index fund at age 18 and you did not touch it, following the S&P average of 12% a year, by the time you turn 72, that $1,000 would be how much? Anybody want to venture a guess? Nearly a million. You want to be a millionaire? 
Just take a thousand bucks when you're 18 and stick it into an index fund and don't ever touch it again. Uh, Pastor, I am 58, not 18. Well, you have to put a lot more than a thousand in. <laughs> you got a lot of work to do. Why? Because time and interest compound. They work together. The conversations in the few days after that was a lot less, Dad, I need a new Xbox. Dad, I need a new bike. Dad, I need a new skateboard. They were more like, hey, Dad, what are we looking at those ETF funds again? (laughs) Especially Nate was in the middle of that conversation. By the way, if parents took their kids' first year of tuition, and let's just say their college tuition, you know those colleges that you send your kids to that basically are hell-bent on changing your children from the Christian faith that you believe in into whatever progressive mind hive they have? Yeah, those colleges. Let's just say you took $10,000 when they were 18 and went off to school and said, hey, listen, you pay for your own school. I'll do you a bigger favor. I'll put $10,000 in one of those index funds. Do you know how much money they'd have by the time they're 65 $1,067,000 that they would have thanks to you, mom and dad. Now, there's a lot of college kids that are like, well, I'm not sure my sophomore year is needed. Dad, imagine if you took the whole 100000 that you gave those mind hive progressive institutions. I'm not suggesting you have to do that. I'm simply saying to you, the Bible speaks to these things. When it says there shall be increase, the word increase in the Hebrew language literally has the idea of compounding upon each other. It just grows exponentially. Not in a linear fashion, one plus one plus one plus one. It is literally two times two, four times four, eight, or 16 times 16, and on the list goes, 128 times 128. It just keeps growing exponentially. That's what compound interest does. The Bible knows these things. It speaks to these things. Time, patience, and disciplines. Don't touch it. You'll be a millionaire. Now, now with inflation, I'll put this caveat. With inflation, who knows if being a millionaire is going to be a great thing or not when they're 65. But at least they'll have a better chance than anybody else. How many know this lady, Carolyn Davidson? Some of you are like, was she in the early service? (laughs) Maybe I know her, Pastor. Carolyn Davidson was a graphic design student at Portland State University in 1971. A college professor named Phil Knight paid her 35 bucks for 17 hours worth of work to design a logo for his company, Blue Ribbon Sports. It had a fledgling startup that was coming out of it. Its name was Nike. 35 bucks, by the way, for the logo of Nike. It's insane. The reason I put her in the message today is not because of her payday, 35 bucks. I'm not commending her for that. She took what she could get, and she did good work. But it's because what Phil Knight did when there was an IPO because of the iconic brand that she had helped to begin and make with her design. He gave her 500 shares of Nike stock in 1971. Mrs. Davidson never sold her shares, which through growth and splits is now 64,000 shares in Nike. Nike's stock price as of Friday was around $103 per share. That means the face value of those 500 original shares is $6.5 million. But here's an even better truth. Nike pays an annual dividend of $1.36. 
So for her 64,000 shares, the face value is staying at 6.5 million. But do you know what they do as a dividend check to her every single year? Here's an extra $87,000 a year. Could you live on $87,000 a year? I mean, here in Scott County, I hope you could. But she only got paid 35 bucks. But she took and understood and never sold. What she understood was an iconic and growing brand. And what happened was the labor that she had done, she gathered and it increased. The Bible's principles are always true if we will just follow them. The greatest friend to principle is interest over time. Now, some of you are like, I'm going to go invest in Nike. You might be late to the train on that one, right? Be like going and investing in Walt Disney now. I don't know. Good luck. I never thought I would preach a message with a subpoint on compound interest, but here we are. This idea of interest is where diligence is needed. If you say, someday I'll save, you will lose time and interest. To the young people in here, I can tell you, if you will discipline yourselves to this, you will help be part of the solution to America's problems, not more of its problems. Saying no to the pressure of consumerism today will afford you stability and generational transition from poverty to wealth that God has designed for that diligent soul. Once again, here in chapter 13 of Proverbs, look in verse 4. The soul of the sluggard desireth and hath nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made fat. This is the only time you want to be fat, folks. That means you literally will be increasing and increasing and increasing in what your possession and your wealth are because you have disciplined yourself to this idea of saving. It leads us to one final truth about principle, P-A-L, and that is the constant for success. Take your Bibles and turn over with me to Ecclesiastes 11, and we'll look there. I put a word underneath this point, and what is that word? Diversify. Good. There's some people that can read. Readers are leaders. Thank you for reading it and leading in it. Now, again, those that have been propping their eyes open, you can listen again. Simply to say, diversification is the old principle of this. Don't put all your eggs in one bag. We all know these things, right? Does the Bible actually talk about this? Sure does. Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 1. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion. And he's basically saying, here's what you share of your own provision. What you've labored, what you've earned, what you've gathered. He says, put it to use. Put it to work. Here's what he says in verse 2. Give a portion to seven and also to eight. Eight different industries. Eight different works. Eight different things. He's saying, make sure you don't put all your eggs in one basket. Diversify. For thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. Then, by the way, in verses 3, 4, and 5, Solomon talks a lot about the realities of life, the observations of plain life, things that we see, things that we know. He says, if the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If the tree fall toward the south or toward the north in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. These are obvious statements. By the way, what he's doing, he's coupling these obvious statements to the same obvious statement that if you take your earnings, if you take your savings and you put them in multiple different places, you're going to be okay. If you put them in one, you may not be. Diversify. 
He that observeth the wind shall not sow. That's a true statement. I've never met a farmer that just stands out on the farm and says, Well, it's windy today. If I cast the seed, it's not going to hit the right spot. I'm not doing it. No, the farmer's like, All right, I've got to figure out a way to make this work. He says, He that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. As thou knowest what it is, the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is within the child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. And what he says in verse 5 is, God is in the process of taking that tiniest little cell in a mom and a dad when the fertilization process begins, and he exponentially grows it into that baby that is ultimately born from the womb. That is the same principle of diversifying what we invest. There is a principle for us to understand that God will take it and exponentially grow it. That's the constant. So he concludes in verse 6, in the morning sow thy seed, in the evening withhold not thine hand. In other words, get to work. That's lesson one. Why? Because principle two, for thou knowest not whether whether shall prosper or which of the seven or eight will prosper. Either this or that. Or whether they both shall be alike good. There's going to be some times where all of them are up, and there's going to be some times where all of them are down. But the process of the diversification of your wealth makes sure that you do not have want. It is hard to say which is better, because again, I'm not a financial advisor. Growth stocks? Oh man, I like these new companies. I'm only going to buy growth stocks. Index funds, okay. Real estate, I mean, hey, I am only into real estate. Well, ask all of those people that had rental houses how 2020 and 2021 were. They were hard. Doesn't mean it wasn't still a good idea. But if all of your money was just in those things, you got real skinny during those years. You didn't get very fat. Or dividend investing. There's all kinds of different vehicles. My point is in the modern age, you can take what you earn, that which you gather by labor, and you can put it to work in a diversified way. That's the one constant for success. Make sure you spread it to seven or eight. In closing, we're now two messages into our thoughts on stewardship principles. Through the sweat of our brow, we must do honest work and hard work, which God views as honorable work. That's last Sunday. Today, we've looked at our gathering by labor shall increase our bottom line. That is the whole point of working, building stability and finances over time. We call that savings or save. The pathway to that saving begins by making a plan, making it a priority, and giving purpose to your money. The principal amounts that you save requires you to commit to that. It ought to be uh, added to a compounding process, and there ought to be the constant for success, which is diversify when you have sustainable amounts. My goal in preaching this is to introduce to believers the Bible truth that the stewardship of your life, including your financial principles, does matter to God. Like all Bible truth, whether they are of the spiritual, emotional, or physical realms, what you do with the truth presented to you this morning, it's between you and God. I am not going to come to your house this week with a checklist and say, "Um, excuse me, have we started a savings account? I mean, if I did show up, it's probably because I took a job at the bank. But I'm not going to take a job at the bank, so I won't be at your house this week. It's not my business. My responsibility as a pastor is to warn you of what is good and what is right and to avoid that which is wrong and harmful. 
A person living paycheck to paycheck, not taking commitment to conservative financial principles, is still a Christian. They can be saved. Well, I didn't, if you can't save money, I don't even think you're a Christian. Well, that's not true. You just need to learn this process. So we're not talking about salvation or eternal life this morning. But there is a note of finality that Paul gives to us in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. Paul links a refusal to engage in good personal financial stewardship to our faith. He says this, speaking to people who were not caring for their widows in their church. He says this in verse 8, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith, and is worse than a what? Can I tell you something? When the Islamic jihadists decide to break into somewhere, they will yell, kill the infidels. Do you know what the word infidel means? It means somebody who doesn't just not like the faith in Jesus Christ. They actively are working against faith in Jesus Christ. You're worse than one of those people. Why? Because you say you're a Christian, but you're not living like one. I mean, it's just my money. Yes. It's the most obvious provision that God has given to you. And you don't treat it as important. Saving money does not save your soul. But a person who never gains control of their money by putting it to work in their lives for God's glory has an extremely poor testimony of trusting in Jesus at all. Right here in Proverbs 13, we close with this verse. In verse 25, he says, The righteous eateth to the satisfying of his soul. But the belly of the wicked shall want. And what he's saying here is, when you have worked and gathered by labor and the increases come and you take and taste of that what you've earned, that which you've worked for, it is sweet to your soul. But those who are constantly saying, I don't have anything, I don't have what they have, it's because they've chosen to follow a path that is not right by God. The righteous eateth to the satisfying of his soul. Well, if you want to, come back next week. I'm really going to make you mad. I'm going to talk about your spending and my spending. Thanks. There'll be all kinds of charts and graphs and pictures of people. But I promise you, if you will take seriously your saving, it will help to control your spending. Father, help us as we close our